Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Due to the graphic nature of the content, Detective may not be suitable for all audiences. got the call. Uncle Clance called everybody and says, Carson has been killed in Aiken. We went to the funeral. We went to Uncle Carson's home. i never forget it. Stood in the yard. Officers are driving up and down the street, you know, the sheriff or whatever in Aiken at that time. But just the way that law enforcement treated us, they didn't talk to anybody. They didn't ask a lot of questions. It's just basically we're doing an investigation and we find something, we'll let you know. I would never allow a family to feel the way that I did, like we did that day. I would never treat another human being like that. I'm Garnsey Sloan for Investigation Discovery, and this is Season 2 of Detective. True stories from behind the yellow tape, the ones you don't hear on TV. That was Gary McFadden speaking. He was a homicide detective for over 27 years, a man with a personal connection to murder, which led to a long career putting away some of Charlotte's worst criminals. But let's start at the very beginning. I started my law enforcement career when I graduated from college, Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina. In the summer of 1981, Gary was at a party having graduated with a degree in physical education. He was standing around with some football buddies and they challenged each other to become police officers. It was actually four of us. They were great friends. They were, they were absolutely great friends. We were at a party and, and if anybody knows fraternity parties, they get kind of wild. When I was thinking it was a joke. So we all decided to apply for law enforcement. I think every one of us got denied, and we did not know why. You saw this and you saw that, and I thought, there's nothing on my record. And so I looked at that, and I said, something else is wrong. I grew up in rural South Carolina. But believe it or not, I didn't think about race until I walked back in that office, and we were talking, and I looked at this gentleman and how he was talking to me. And I was like, wow, could you see it on paper as race? No, you can hide that. Because the application was college grad, 
we were all graduating or had graduated. None of us, I know none of us had criminal backgrounds. So then they were all football players, so physically fit was not an issue. So, okay, if you can read and write, you graduated from college, you're physically fit, and you have no criminal background, what else could you be denied on? So it was difficult, but I knew he couldn't deny me, and I was hired. I still have that original letter that when the police department hired me. A lot of people don't. I have the original copy, circle the date. It is mounted on my wall. Once Gary was hired by the Charlotte Police Department, they sent him to the police academy for training. The academy was a great place to start. We had a great time, great camaraderie, made great friends there. Day one at the academy, you know, you all stand around looking at each other. Who's who? Why did they hire him? Why did they hire her? Can he run? Can he shoot a gun? We were a very close-knit group of people. We have a five-mile run at the end of the class. I still, to this day, have those green shorts because I don't think I'm going to ever run five miles again for competition. At the police academy, Gary witnessed one of his fellow cadets tell a lie, and he was dismissed because of it. But Gary doesn't see the world in black and white. He believes people make choices with the circumstances they are dealt we ran every day, and one of our classmates left his tennis shoes at home or in his car or something, and um, he didn't have them. So he um, just borrowed a pair of shoes off of somebody's locker. When he borrowed them, he brought them back. And when he brought them back, it was a fire captain's tennis shoes. And so he talked to the fire captain and said, Captain, the commandant told us to run. I didn't have my shoes. I didn't want to get gig, as they call it. And he talked to the fire captain, and the fire captain kind of joked about it. And he said, yeah, that's all right, son, because he saw what we were going through. And so at lunch, I guess the captains and the sergeants and the majors, you know, they're in their little hole eating and talking. And I guess it was a joke that the police recruits did better than the fire recruits that day running. And he said, well, they should because one of your guys used my shoes. Commandant came back and that young man was relieved from the police academy. And they call it a theft. It wasn't a theft. It was a position that this young man got into and he couldn't get out. And he thought by just borrowing the shoes, it would have been all right. He went back and told the captain and the captain said, yeah, that's great. He kind of joked about it too. He said, you did well today. I watch you. And they let him go. As a police officer, I took these into my heart, you know, to look at things a little different. Do you have to go to that limit to fire someone because you borrowed somebody's shoes? So the academy taught me lessons that were never in a book. The academy taught me lessons that they have no idea they taught me. Your character and who you are is important. Once Gary joined the police department, he understood why his training at the academy was so important. It taught him how to be a good cop. I don't think people understand what we go through every day that pushes you to that limit. This guy is going to save my life if he has a chance. I'm going to save his life. And I depend on this guy to watch my back. If he sees somebody coming through the door, he's going to take care of business. You know, you are in danger every day. I don't think people realize. They think we just run around and write tickets. What the Academy didn't teach Gary, his new co-workers, all veteran police officers, did. I was trained by some of the best officers, I think, that the world could ever have. There is Ma Johnson. Ma Johnson. She was the mother of our district. Trust me. When you go up against Ma Johnson, you need to have your game on. If she put you down and looked back at you, you were down. And she was a great training officer with me. And I remember our first arrest. And 
this guy said something to her, and he was part of the floor after that. I'm like, she can handle herself. She taught me how to take care of yourself on the streets. There was Buddy Morgan. Buddy Morgan was the symbol of perfection for a uniform. I mean, he had his whistle. That's when we carried whistles, the chain. The shoes were clean. They were tight. The uniform didn't have one single thread on it, out of place. But Buddy was a person that when I looked at his uniform, I looked at his briefcase, that's police work. But then I looked at his life as a husband, as a father, then I said, wow, that's who I want to be like. But I watched him as a young officer, how he treated his wife and how he treated his son. And I can tell you, when I see Buddy and his wife today, that's the same Buddy that I knew 30 years ago of respect and honor his wife and your family is the essential thing in your life. The way that I treat my kids and talk to my kids and honor my kids and push my kids is because of Buddy Morgan. And to this day, I can think about the small things Buddy told me. If you see a car tag and it has one screw in the tag, you probably need to stop that car. Why? Well, that tag probably wasn't belonging on that car. They just took it off another car and put a screw in. Who looks at that? Buddy taught me that. Document everything that you do. If you have a traffic stop, you don't have to give them a big ticket. But if you give them a warning ticket or a warning, document that, even give them the warning ticket. So when they come back and say, we're looking for a Buick LeSabre, tanning color, driven there, Buddy can look back in his paperwork and say, we stopped that car on that such a date. That is documentation that Buddy taught me. And there were the street smart Elmo brothers. But the Elmo brothers, they were a gift. They were unusual. They didn't go too fast and they didn't go too slow. They made their day into police work like you never would believe. And I cherish that and I thank them for that. It was the good old boys on steroids. And it was great. When we got in our car in the morning, we drove down the street and we wrote our 7 a.m. parking tickets every morning. So we wrote them parking tickets on the way to get a biscuit and coffee every morning. And so what we did is park behind a church, had our biscuits and coffee and lined up our day. I mean, it was just like preparing for a game. And while you're having your biscuits and coffee, this is what we're going to do today. And this is how we're going to run this day. And then we would come out from behind the church in rush hour traffic. So at that time, it's like eight o'clock and we caught the speeders. These lessons became important as Gary faced his first killer. Not a person, but an epidemic. Crack and cocaine started. It hit us in the 80s and 90s. It hit us by force. You would rob your mother and everything to do drugs, rob your people, your families, everything to smoke that glass pipe. Everybody started to do that. And that's when problems came. People were robbing and stealing just to support their habits. These are people from low-income status wanting to feel that high. And so robbery became a big issue back then. When crack cocaine overtook the city of Charlotte in the 1990s, Gary was appointed to a task force working on street crimes. So the task force that our department formed, it's a street-level task force where you run around and get leads and say, hey, I got these five guys doing a bunch of robberies. They're robbing people. I need to find these five guys. So we'll do surveillance and look for these guys. My part and my partner's part were, if you got a lead on these guys, give it to us. We will work these cases. We were working the street-level robbers. You know, people come up and just rob you. Not robbery of the commercial business where, like, banks and somebody goes in with a gun and say, give me all your money. 
the detectives who work in that were still working, that we were working where I see you walking down the street, I pull a gun on you and say, give me your money. We were working those kind of robberies. So for a year, they formed this task force, and then they saw where the task force were doing such good work. It became the ADW task force, assault with a deadly weapon, because now we are seeing that people are becoming desperate. In the robberies that they were committing, now they are so strung out, they would shoot people. You know, give me your money. So then we were a combination of an armed robbery task force slash assault with a deadly weapon unit. So they just formed this unit where if you were robbed and shot, we would work the cases. So we kind of took them away from homicide working these violent assaults, and we start working the robbery ADW task force. So homicide was also being pushed, pushed, pushed. And you have to think back in the 90s, a lot of departments didn't have a big homicide unit. Our homicide unit at that time was four to six people, no more than that. And they were catching 80 and 90 cases a year. So we took the burden off of them of working those almost dead, shot really bad, in the hospital, life-threatening, but they lived. And then we go back and say, why were you robbed? So we were taking all those cases away from them. Now, if they died, then we dropped it off to homicide. And homicide kind of loved us because we would work the cases up until while they were in the hospital, and then all of a sudden they die a week later of complications. So then we would have all the leads, all the information, all the evidence collected, and we just kind of essentially do another report and give it to the homicide guys. The sheer amount of cases the crack epidemic created weren't the only struggle. When Gary's cases finally got to court, there were more hurdles to overcome. It's definitely hard. The first thing that the defense attorneys look for is credible witnesses. If you don't have credible witnesses, you have to spend a lot of time with your witnesses, a little bit more time in their statements. But the defense attorneys love for us to bring cases like that to court. But we got to get across this hump. The hump is your witnesses. Well, Mr. Rogers, aren't you a drug dealer? Yes. Haven't you been arrested for drugs before? Yes. How many cases do you have pending now in the system? And they would have to tell us. How many cases have you pled guilty to? And they would tell us. All of that to say, so now you want the jury to believe that although you told Detective McFadden all this great information and you were so credible to him, you have three cases pending in the system and you have been convicted for two or three cases. Defense attorneys love that because they can just beat our witnesses, beat our witnesses, beat our witnesses. We went through all of that late 80s, early 90s with this crack epidemic across America. And we found out that a lot of time we have a lot of people on the scene, but you know, are they going to... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Be a good witness. Even if they give you a great statement, and this has happened many times, they give you a great statement, information is good, but they're on crack. We brought some of our witnesses to court. They didn't look great when they got to court. You kind of dance with them, as we say, keep in touch with them for like a week out. We found out if they were going to receive a reward, it wasn't going to be until after court. You know, we learned that quick. If you give them $100 now for information, you will never see them. Getting witnesses on bus passes, how are they going to get to court? And then when they get to court, did they do drugs before court? Are they going to do drugs after court? You know, you can wash them up pretty good, put a nice suit on them, but you can never change that facial expression, and that was hard. I learned from that, I'm going to take my witnesses and make sure that this is going to come up. This is going to happen. Don't get scared. Admit. Give me that 10% of what you have done wrong. Yes. Instead of like, yeah, I am. Uh, yes, I sell drugs. Yes, I'm on the street. Yes, I have been arrested. But I saw that man pull a trigger and kill that person. Nothing wrong with my eyes. So then I started to work with my witnesses better and say, admit to what you did wrong. Don't let him make this a scary thing. Admit to it. And then when you admit to it, but when you get to that point, it says, I saw that man shot that guy and I saw him pull the trigger. There's no doubt in my mind what I saw. The hard work paid off as Gary made the jump from chasing crack dealers on the task force to putting killers behind bars in homicide. In 1990, they brought some people in the task force. Task force was still up and running. They said they needed to add more people to the homicide unit. A major came to me and said, you will be good for it. I applied for the homicide position and I received the job in 1990. When I came into homicide, we had six homicide detectives and one supervisor. That means we juggled 122 cases among six people. So you didn't see your partners. You saw them passing, leave something on your desk. I learned a little bit from all of them. And then all of a sudden, I get my first case by myself. Everybody else had, as we say, caught a case. They were either tired at home or trying to get some time with their families. So I had to go by myself. First cases are always shootings, drug deals going bad, robberies that turn into homicides. Those are my first cases. 
These cases certainly made establishing himself in the homicide department a challenge for Gary. But the job did come with its perks. And so as a detective, I had this mindset of what a detective should look like. Your seasons, guys, your, your suits, your watches, your shoes. Looked at some of the New York detectives, you know, they're dressed, they're, as we say, dressed to the nines. Then I look back into the years of the fedoras and the hats and the, your trench coat is like a signature in the wintertime. And so you looked at all that. So I started to buy suits and trench coats. And you had your light trench coat, then you had your heavy trench coat, then you had trench coat just for court. Oh, I was set apart. I was, they said, a fly in milk. I stood out. It was no question. And so I had that reputation, you know, not a party or person, but uh, I would go out and just kind of stand around the clubs and everybody knew who I was. Some people said Miami Vice was hot back then, and I kind of fell in that image also. He had the look, he had the bravado, and just as Gary had changed the way people looked at him, the city of Charlotte was beginning to do the same. A lot of corporations started to come to Charlotte. Charlotte's a big banking city, so then we started to have a lot of visitors coming, people who wanted to start businesses, and then we had a lot of, we were getting become a tourist city, stock car, NASCAR, the NBA, and all of that. And they're coming through a wonderful side of the city, it was called the university area. The university area in the city had just became a popular place to live. With the new faces in town came a new wave of crime and Gary's first big case. Patricia Wilson, she was a employee at Wachovia, maybe it was First Union then. She came to Charlotte and she actually lost her life of a carjacking. She was approached by several men there in the parking lot and they wanted her car and they wanted her money. Her friend stood and started giving them her pocketbook and money. Patricia turned to run and they shot and killed her in the parking lot. I went to the hospital. She was lying on the table and I held her hand. And, you know, Pretty much they were what they call coding her at the moment, and she died. I don't know why I grabbed her hand. The doctors don't know why I grabbed her hand, but I did for whatever reason. It's probably the first hand that I held in homicide. And then at that point, we have to remove their valuables, you know, your rings, your watches, and everything, and I'm documenting all that, and I put them in, in evidence. Her husband was informed of the murder, and he came to Charlotte. I'll never forget him. I still remember his name, Joel. We talked to him in a hotel room. And in talking to him, he didn't want to talk to anybody but me. And I understood it now, but I didn't understand it then. The captain, the majors, and the deputy chiefs, and the chief went there all in their nice uniforms, and they were talking to him in a professional manner. We're going to do everything in the best interest of this department, and we're going to search for these criminals. He basically told them, I don't want to talk to you all no more. Who's the detective on the case? He told everybody at that point, leave the room. I didn't know what was going to go on. He sat me down. He said, you tell me the truth. Don't lie to me. And that's something that I learned at that point in my early career. Never, ever, ever lie to your victim families. I think that was a case that really just made me understand what the victim family is going to go through. He flies into Charlotte. He's put up in a nice hotel. And we are going to tell him the circumstances of his wife's death. So I had to build his trust and everything at that moment. And he said, do not lie to me. He says, what do you have? I said, we have nothing. He said, thank you. He said, how do you think you're going to catch these guys? I said, if they dump the car, we find the car, we do the evidence in the car. Another thing that I learned in that moment is also, you have to be very personal with the families. He says, 
Who was there when she died? I held her hand, Mr. Wilson. I said, I held her hand. After consoling Joel, the victim's husband, Gary had to move quickly as a call came in with a lead in Patricia's case. One guy stepped forward and said he was partly involved into this murder. And he came forward and gave us some information. And we went out and found the guys. We'd taken DEA task force, FBI. We all going to raid this whole apartment complex. The person that we were talking with said he's probably going to have a shootout. There's no question. I mean, you have a shotgun, you point it in somebody's back, you meant to kill him. So we knew that they were violent. We knew that they had committed a lot of robberies because now they surfaced. Now we've seen where they committed multiple robberies in the city of people. So we knew who we were going to get. We didn't think it was going to go like that. If we come with a heavy presence, police force, you know, they throw their hands up. But during the shooting, a mother called her son over. Said, please come, 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 come. And he was running across the parking lot where we were between us and the defendant. He was probably elementary school, six, seven years old. He was a small kid. And he was running over, and he was going to run in front of us. And I grabbed him out of instinct, put him inside of a dumpster, shut the door. After everything was done, I went back, got him out, put him on the ground, rubbed his head, said, you all right? He said, yeah. He said, what went on? I said, you don't want to know. And he went on. And people saw that was happening. And I got my uh, Medal of Valor for saving that kid's life at that moment. Did I know what I was going to do? No. Was I still scared? Yes. Did I know I had to do something? Yeah. The killer was in custody. The child was safe. But Gary had one more thing to do. And I go back to Joel. He says, where's my wife's belongings? Especially her wedding ring. I said, I'll get you your wife's ring. For whatever reason, I said, I'll get you your wife's ring. Gary felt a personal connection to Joel due to a loss in his own family. Long before he became a detective. When I was 11 or 12 years old, down in Aiken, South Carolina, my father had this first cousin. His name is Carson McFadden. He was the son of Clarence McFadden. If you ever talk about anybody in our family, there's nobody higher than Uncle Clarence. My father took his cousins as we almost raised as brothers. They were very close. We got the call. Uncle Clarence called everybody and says, Carson has been killed in Aiken. I remember us having a bus there were so many of us, we went in a bus to Aiken, South Carolina. We went to the funeral, I'll never forget it, stood in the yard. People watched us. Officers are driving up and down the street, you know, the sheriff or whatever in Aiken at that time. There was police presence. There are a lot of people there. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows how he was murdered or why he was murdered. And nobody had questions. But just the way that law enforcement treated us at that time, they didn't talk to anybody. They didn't ask a lot of questions. It's just... Basically, we're doing an investigation, and we find something, we'll let you know. It wasn't that we're concerned about you. You know, we're grieving because you're grieving. We lost a citizen of our community. We didn't get that. I can say personally, I never felt that. I felt mad. I would never allow a family to feel the way that I did like we did that day. I had no idea I was going to be a detective, no idea I was going to be a police at 12 but I knew that I would never treat another human being like that. Gary remembered how he felt that day. And so he went back to his department in search of Joel's wedding ring. They said, so you promised this man you'll get his wife a ring. I said, yeah, we don't need the ring for evidence. What evidence that has to do with the case? And we kind of agreed. So I went back to the property room and I looked at the ring. And the ring is in a plastic cup. It's nothing professional about this cup or anything. So... 
I took the ring out of the cup. I cleaned the ring. I took it by a jewelry store and asked the guy, can I have a box? And he said, what you need a box for? I asked for a ring. And he says, what, are you getting married? And I said, no, I just need a box for a ring. And he gave me the box for the ring and I put it in and I presented it back to him. And I think it's, you have to say, why did you say presented it back to him? Because I just didn't want to give it back to him. I presented it back to him as his wife's, your wedding band. And he said something about that. He said, sir, this is not what you commonly do. And I said, no, it's not. And he said, this is not how you commonly give a person a ring back who just lost their wife. I said, no, it's not. But he said, continue to do it. Because he said, that's a valuable moment. He said, I don't know you, but he said, I'm looking for you to bring me a a ring back in something that says evidence envelope. I'm looking for you to bring me in a little plastic jar that says evidence with a sticker on it. And that's how you're going to bring me my wife's ring. He says, whatever you do, continue doing that. And I said, well, I don't want to be there. No, he said, continue to be different. I learned from that moment that that is what a family did not expect. So you give them the unexpected. And something that I remember Joel saying when his wife was killed, never lie to your victims. Always tell them the truth. Detective is produced by Investigation Discovery and is part of the Panoply Network with special thanks to Kevin Bennett, Amy Angelowitz, and Emily Kaiser. This episode was produced by Tom Hainer. Many thanks to the best audio engineer in the business, Joe Powers. Original music was composed by the talented Chris Kennedy and remixed by Joe Powers. Cover art was designed by Non Galat. Sign up now on iTunes to get new episodes of Detective on your feed. And join me, Garnsey Sloan, next week for an all-new episode. Until then, check out crimefeed.com for all your latest crime news. On the next episode of Detective, a serial killer comes to Charlotte. His name was Henry Lewis Wallace. So in the 90s, 92, 93, 94, Henry Lewis Wallace comes to town. We don't know who Henry Lewis Wallace is. We never thought about Henry Lewis Wallace. Why? Because, as I say, six people work in 388 murders. We're back-to-back. You know, we just work in murders. So we don't have time to talk. We don't have time to communicate. We don't have time to compare notes. People say, well, why didn't they connect the dots? Well, if I'm not talking to you and I don't see you, I can't connect the dots. If I don't tell you I'm working this murder, is there any similarities going on with your murder? No, we don't have time. But when the terror struck and Henry Wallace and, as we say, the walls came crumbling down, they were not there. Henry Lewis came in and started leaving bodies everywhere. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.